0: Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the, the James, James Bond 80Z
1: podcast. podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey
2: of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind.
0: The James Bond 8 z Podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, E.ON or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondaz.co.uk. This episode of the podcast was recorded before the sad news of Tanya Roberts passing away on January the 4th, 2021.
1: Hello and welcome to our very first special episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. I say special, it's because we are covering a film, one film in in total. It's A View to a Kill. Uh, obviously, alphabetical order, A View to a Kill comes first. It might not have always been first though. Mm. Why would that be
2: Brendan? Because it's originally based on... The full title is From A View to a Kill. That's right. And in Octopussy, at the end of that film,
1: it said James Bond will return in From A View to a Kill.
0: Mm. And a lot of people think it's just called View to a Kill. That's, That's true. true.
1: Yeah. Even even when I was putting this thing together, I'd put it under V. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. A View to a Kill. So, it's going to be slightly different to the A to Z format. Uh, we're going to do the... Um, this is going to be about the production of the film and its release. Um, and it will be done in a chronological order. So, um, if you are a huge fan of this film, then a lot of this, you might be familiar with the story behind the film, especially if you've watched the behind-the-scenes extras, which are a lot of the, yeah. you know, a lot of the information that's out there comes from the DVD extras, right? Because they're obviously so widely available. And, but anyway, look, I hope you find something new, about out about a view to a kill. I hope to find out something new because I know these two guys have been researching in isolation as long as, as well as I have so I think hopefully we'll have something new to learn about. Mm.
0: I'm Rod- sure we will have.
1: Sir Roger's final James Bond film so I guess we should start off by talking about like the context of A View to a Kill in the canon of James Bond. Uh, it was released, yeah. released in
2: 1985. Roger Moore has already announced that Roger Moore was going to do this before the day before Never Say Never Again came out. Oddly right. Enough, okay. they actually announced that he would do this again. He reluctantly didn't he didn't want to do it. I think he, he had to be persuaded to do this final one. Well, I've read I've read
1: differing things and I'll come on to that actually mm. when we come into the, the casting of the film, because I've read various different reports. But I guess that that timing with never say never again is is really important, I guess the 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 previous film Octopussy that was the big story right it was they had the two James Bond films coming out at that time it was Sir Roger even though he'd been in that role for many years and uh, you know that was his sixth Bond film there was still an element of competitiveness and, and apparently mm. there was still a lot of uh, feeling in the world that you know Sean Connery was always James Bond, right, the original James Bond. Yeah. But they'd had that box office battle. Roger Moore and the official film had won. So I guess Octopussy, they were riding on a bit of a high, right? On Absolutely. an all-time high.
0: Yeah, yes. On an all-time high, yeah, very good.
1: Yeah. Um, and so you're looking at what the 14th James Bond film. Yeah. Um, the films had at this point been in production, constant production for over 20 years. And so you know you're at a time where bond is very comfortable um which i think comes across a little bit in the film possibly
0: yeah yeah too far too comfortable
1: <laughs> and it was the third uh john glenn james bond film of five that he would direct and obviously a sad moment for fans not just because it's roger moore's last film but because it's lois maxwell's last film as as money penny
0: yeah it was, a, it was a bit of a transition for a lot of things in the bond universe wasn't it it the the whole Sean Connery Roger era is almost kind of like a, a similar era in that they had these long-lasting characters for a very long time and then it was all going to change again but nobody really knew what was going to happen at that point I think the the when you got to when Roger got to Fury Eyes Only in Octopussy everyone knew he had to go at some point but you just didn't know when and I think this was the point, this was the film where they kind of went, that's it, It's isn't it? It's, it's, we've taken it too far now. Probably should have finished on the last film. But um, it, yeah, it was a bit of a transition. Weird, weird stage for uh, Bond.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think if you were to block it off in terms of Bond uh, periods, this is the end of the first one. If you sort of loop it all together, Connery, more yeah. Moore. Yeah. The original sort of, they, they'd already depleted uh, Ian Fleming's source material so yeah. that was that had ran dry and they were to... and they never really
0: reinvented it did they for a new area they 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 slightly they modified it as new bonds came in and it said kind of yeah we're gonna we're gonna base it around their character a bit mm-hmm. but they never reinvented it i mean look what like when Goldeneye came out that was the biggest reinvention that yeah. we'd seen and then obviously um casino royale again and massive reinvention but uh up until that point it would always been a continuation, really, of the the theme, themes that they'd always had. Yeah, yeah.
1: interesting that it also this film marks a, a starting point for Michael G. Wilson, who is, you know, the heir apparent to Covey Broccoli. He has been co-writing the films and it, it, this is the film where he gets promoted from an exec producer to a co-producer. And I think that speaks volumes of like the transitional period that this film comes at yeah. um for the bond franchise but like in terms of like the the world of hollywood at the time as well we're talking about a very different world to when you know dr no came out this is 20 years on the, the year before 1984 the high, the, the highest grossing film of the year was beverly hills cop and actually The uh, that year was the first time in five years um, that a top grossing film, uh, the film that was the top grossing film of the year didn't involve George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. So we're at the the peak of that, like Spielberg era. And even in that year, you know, you've got Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, uh, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom and also Gremlins. They're like top five films. So that's when you think about action cinema.
2: Yeah.
1: That's what bonds I, up against.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I, I find I find with the eighties bonds that I often don't feel they don't fit in that era. When I when I when you think of the eighties and you think of all of the great films of the eighties, it, it, the Bond films, you, you kind of go, well, what, "Hold on, which when, which year was this?" Because that other film was released in this year, and it's nothing like that. It's, it's, it just doesn't seem to work. But it, the whole eighties uh, for Bond was a bit of a strange era, and they never quite found their footing, did they, with the eighties films? It certainly and seems def- a
2: bit lost. And you remember, mm. like they're twenty years into the franchise, whole new audience. Like a completely new audience now. That are obviously they they're watching things produced by Lucas yeah. and Spielberg, which is a different yeah. different ball game, isn't it? Yeah,
0: and and you're picking up um people who are watching it who well, the original people would watch Sean Connery and Roger Moore mm-hmm. when they were young and there were there were young people watching it. If you're a you know, twenty year old turning on to View to a Kill for the first time you're not getting that same experience watching Roger Moore in View to a Kill. It's quite a straight you're thinking, well hold on. What is is this meant to be a young guy, yeah. a spy or, or what is this? Is this a <laughs> John le Carré <Macaray-th>, um, <laughs> film? What's going on with this? Um but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a difficult one, isn't it?
1: Yeah, what's well, so what Roger's what 56 when he makes
2: this?
0: Yeah, and
1: 57 uh, yeah. by the
2: time they finish.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean I guess we'll come on to that um but yeah I mean I guess I just thought it was important to sort of recognize that that this is the period because yeah sometimes you think of Bond films as being sort of timeless and out of their out of their time but this was a very weird time for Bond in, in Hollywood and when you look at the films that also came out in 1985 I mean this is this is a peak era for you, you know films of the era uh, back yeah. to the future Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Rambo 2 Rocky 4 these were the top grossing films of the year yeah Jewel uh, yeah. in the Nile I mean that was just that's that's the sort of film that Bond wants to be right
0: yeah but it, they suppose with Cubby at the helm and sticking to his guns and saying this is a Bond film it probably what didn't really want them to change and that's where where Wilson people came in and, and said you've got to you've got to make a difference to this I mean it took a bit of time for them to actually do that but um, yeah it, it, you couldn't have made Bond into one of those films, which would have been the that would have been the natural thought, wouldn't it? We just make something like this, and people will like it. But they didn't. They stuck to their guns, and finally didn't quite work in a lot of a lot of ways. But I think that's quite important. They that they didn't change too much because it it's carried on that way, and they managed to do it later on.
1: But as we'll see, as we get to the casting and and some of the other things, they they are. It's clear that they're recognising that they need to do things to update. Um, specifically, we'll we'll talk about that in I guess in a minute. But um, well, it's well, more than apparent
2: in the script, which great. I'm going to have a yeah. look into because you can see that sort of tussle with old Bond, uh, you know the old tropes, and then moving forward, thinking, oh, what are we going to do? Um, And the script, like we said, was written uh, Richard Maybaugh, the long-term writer of Bond, Mm -hmm. and Michael G. Wilson, working together for the first time. Uh, First off, it it wasn't John Glenn's first uh, choice, screenwriter. He wanted Octopus's George MacDonald Fraser. He was unavailable. So the writing team came in to collaborate together for the first time and um, they sort of seen that there was an explosion in computer tech at this time. You know, mid-80s, there's a bit of a boom in Silicon Valley. So, I guess in order to try and modernise and make Bond relevant, that's why this is such a, a key pivotal point of the plot and of the script. It's so the original concept uh, for this film was to have Zorin who is the um, he's the, the villain the main villain of this film to alter the course of uh, Haley's Comet to smash into Silicon Valley so that was the original idea great idea it's got shades of dying of the day that that sort of stuff for me I <laughs> so just can't like you've
0: got people sat there whose jobs it is to, <laughs> to, to come up with scripts and ideas for these multi-million pound films and somebody just walks in and says I've got it yeah Halley's Comet, Silicon Valley, it. space, and yep. computers—we've got it here. So, wait, Halley's
1: Comet was was last seen in the solar system in, in nineteen eighty six. So that's why I guess it
2: was. That's it, yeah, that's yeah. what was in their mind because it was obviously relevant. It was like news that it was going to pass again. It's not the sort of relevance you want, though, is it?
0: <laughs> Comet <laughs> not, going across? Not really. that's, that's not. It's no. not a trend
2: that everyone's really interested in for, for a year. They um, they reasoned that it was too fantastical luckily enough and so uh, the draft there was a draft of it where that happened but that was thrown out and uh, they replaced it with the plot that we've got in in the end which I'll go on to but most of the characters the dialogue and the main skeleton of the plot is the same so that's that's quite interesting that they they did realise it was fantastical but still went ahead really you know, just take out the yeah, comment. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Uh, so it's still about micro. It's about microchips. That's the well. It's right. It's first off. <laughs> so <laughs> how long have you the got? Pre- I, I don't think we've got long enough. So the pre- <laughs> pre- the pre credits, you've got Bond retrieving a microchip uh, from 003. in Siberia. In Siberia, uh, then he snowboards, which I'm sure we'll go on to. <laughs> um, then you've got the credits, and he goes back to back to the office and talks about this microchip, and they dis- discover Max Zorin might have something to do with this. Who is a he's a, a wealthy. I mean, he's a he's rich a industrialist. Rich in, he's a rich billionaire, isn't he? He's like a first tech billionaire. He's I mean, quite, he that's quite a, yeah, he's quite ahead of its time, really. That that part of it. So, with that link, they move forward, and he goes to, to investigate Max Zorin, which then leads to forty minutes of horsing I around, and I, and <laughs> I mean horsing around. <laughs> they should have got the film passing around, shouldn't they? It would have been—you would have picked up all of the horse horse fans, and they would have been very happy with the film. So, we then spend forty minutes investigating Zorin's horse racing sort of interests because there's a, another scandal within that where he's doping horses and making them into super horses, uh, and then. Which which by the way is put in there because Cubby Broccoli had an interest in horses at the time. So yeah, that seems a bit a bit, bit crowbared into the plot because after forty minutes of spending time talking about horses and thinking, Oh, this must mean something, it's dropped. Yeah. <laughs> we leave France he, he, and there is no reference to the horse again. No no reference. Nothing. <laughs> no mention. Then we end up in San Francisco.
1: Wait, you missed Paris. You, you did Paris, uh, then the horse uh, horses,
2: right? And then San Francisco. Horses, pa- of course, yes, Paris. Uh, You're a bit caught up on these horses, uh, aren't it's you? Just the horses. <laughs> the horses dominate. <laughs> <laughs> Not a horse um, Yeah, he does some more investigating in Paris and it, it leads him all the way to San Francisco where he spends a few days working in an office, which is what it seems like, <laughs> Uh, he discovers more of Zorin's plan so we then go and we've got a shot of Zorin explaining his plan to his fellow minions think think Goldfinger but this is in a blimp Uh, with the map as well the uh, interactive map that's that's in there as well Uh, so we head to San Francisco there's a mine and there's a Big crescendo on the Golden Gate Bridge involving a blimp at the end. So, I'll, I've got to unpick pick this because there's there's so much that's wrong with it. I, I, maybe let's not go into
1: what's <laughs> what's do wrong with it.
2: Uh. <laughs> no, but I've got some nice quotes from from the writers. Um, okay, go on. And there's a, there's also a part of the script which uh, which goes to give you a flavour of what, what we're dealing with with the dialogue. So Zorin and Mayday are admiring San Francisco in in the in the blimp. And she says, what a view. And Zorin says, to a kill. And then Christopher yeah. Walken's character, Zorin, cackles and and laughs a- about that line. It's it's almost... He might as well look at the, the camera and nod and wink because it's it's that obvious. But
1: it, it, It's very chubby, isn't it? It's, it, um, it, it, yeah. it is,
2: yeah. So I've got a quote from Richard Maybaum. He says, uh, The Silicon Valley lies between the Haywood and San Andreas faults, Zorin decides to create an earthquake that will send the Silicon Valley into the Pacific. So their story seems to be based on geological research. They've looked at a map and decided, oh, this, this is, this will work. This is just, we can justify this. So they, they went on ahead with that. Wilson says, our plots tend to be fairly realistic. We, we will never be believable though. This is a fantasy film. We don't try to be realistic, but within the terms of our genre, the reality that we deal in, we like them to be believable. Zorin's plot is something that could almost happen. I'm not sure what he's trying to say there. <laughs> Which bit of the plot? Yeah. I just
0: <laughs>
2: but he I mean, could definitely buy a load of horses and drug them up. It, That's is he saying that it's just a bit boring? It, is, it could happen. It can't happen. I don't understand what he's trying to say there. And there's a lot of the film that is very realistic. Perhaps too realistic in places. I I would agree, yes. He said, We don't want to make a non-action film, but there are different ways to be exciting. We've kept gadgets to a minimum and put Bond in situations where he has to use his own resources to survive. So there's a nice scene in uh, Underwater where, where Bond is... The car's pushed in and Bond's underwater and he has to wait underwater until Zorin and Mayday have gone. And he hasn't got any gadgets, so he decides to suck air from the tires of the car. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of a move. which has been debunked. There's a, there's if a Bond I'm, film where he has how, the there, respirator, isn't there? If I believe rightly, by MythBusters, that that's not possible. Did you say the MythBusters bit? <laughs> the, yes, the MythBusters. So they they've disproved that that you can't actually do that. But even so, I quite enjoyed that moment. I thought it was quite ingenious. Um, yeah, that is a cool uh, moment. Enough for me to believe it anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I bet many many uh, a young lad has watched Bond and thought, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a go.
2: Yeah. Drive point. my car into the river.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> pretend to my parents that I'm I'm stuck under stuck under water and I can't breathe. I'll take my bike in with me. It should probably work with a bike, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, Might work with a bike, yeah, maybe not a car. I'm sure yeah, it's probably would, much, pressure, but um yeah, so it's it turns out it's pretty standard fare towards the end of the film. Like I said, it, it, they go to the mine. Where Mayday sacrifices herself
1: because it's a bomb to flood Silicon Valley, right? And that's to wipe out the chips, and then to, to, for him to yeah, gain to control, flood of the, it. Yeah, yeah.
2: But the, well, that that's it. Like, apart from that, once he's destroyed all the chips, then what? That bit's never covered because it's like if he destroys everything.
0: Yeah, it's just it's just this, this concept. I don't, I don't know where he's is. He making his chips somewhere else? Is he is he not? He's not using Silicon Valley. This was the, this was the we we spoke about this, didn't we? Where we said. What he's actually doing is he's destroying an industry. He's not destroying the other companies because yeah. he's probably using all sorts of manufacturers and stuff that exist in Silicon Valley. He's not just one company that's got a load of chips that he's trying to get rid of. So it's not the
2: it's not a foolproof plan. No, is he? Is he? Does he make the chips where the horses are? I don't think so. <laughs> Because I know he puts listen, the we, chips into the coffin. Listen,
1: we've watched this film recently and I'm, I, I, I don't think it's sunk in that well, to be
0: honest. I don't, maybe he's making the chips in Silicon Valley and he's not thought about that. <laughs> and he's, after the film, he, if he had succeeded, he'd
2: be like, oh, no, nah, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, well. Um, so then, then the, end, the end bit of the film is, is a quite a good set piece, to be honest, with Zorin escaping in a, in a blimp, which is maybe not the ideal... Vehicle to escape in. It's quite slow. It's mm. quite um, slow, quite noticeable. Yes, definitely. No, It's got his name on the side yeah, as well, hasn't it? Quite hard to escape in a blimp, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah. So do you, do you know how the blimp came about?
2: It was from the test footage,
1: Yeah. Yeah, oh, so I'll talk about this when we get to the Golden Gate Bridge bit, but yeah, they went on a recce to San Francisco. I think they sort of decided that San Francisco was where they wanted to film. It's John Glenn and... Um, production designer pete lamont a few other people were there to shoot some plates of the golden gate bridge i think and they had the fuji film blimp flying over Mm. san francisco because it was something to do the 84 olympics in la and so they shot these plates of the of the blimp heading up um towards the golden gate bridge and that was the very first footage they sought for the film and then it uh, they ended up building i think i
2: think they ended up building the blimp around that yeah it's 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 the same color because of that
0: yeah. yeah, that concept is actually quite good. If it if the blimp he had was like a Fuji film blimp, that would work because people see it over the city and it could get away without noticing. Yeah. But he's put on his name on the side of it when he's just blown up. Like the police are going to find out pretty soon that Zorin's involved in this, aren't they? Because he's the only one who benefits from this whole thing. Yeah. And he's flying a blimp just across the top of the, the where the explosion's been. But yeah, if you, uh, it would have been better if it was a, a Fujifilm blimp, and he he kind of snuck away. But Goldfinger did that. Goldfinger did a very clever disguise for for him and his men, but not Zorin.
2: Well, there's there's a lot of similarities between the Goldfinger script and this one, and a lot of people have said it's basically Goldfinger for the eighties. Yeah. Um, and there, there's you could look through the whole story, and it's it's pretty similar. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
2: But then, obviously, he gets foiled at the end. Uh, last set piece is on the Golden Gate Bridge, and Zorin falls to his death, and not before time. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking of Zorin,
1: Wheatley, what did you, uh, what have you got to tell us about the the new cast members in this film?
0: Well, there's quite a few new cast members in um, in, in View to a Kill, a mixed bag, really, strange bag in, in some senses. <laughs> obviously, the the main um, the main the main character, the, the villain, is is Zorin. Which he's he's kind of um he's he's similar in vain to a lot of the kind of other Bond villains in that he's he's got some stupid plan that he's trying to do something ridiculous, in this case, um just drawing Silicon Valley. But he's he's slightly different in that he is actually active, he's like he does stuff, he you see him training martial arts and things like that. He's meant to be quite mad. He's the same age, or he's younger than quite a bit younger than um, than Roger Moore in it. So, that, and that's not something you see very often that Bond's villain is is actually younger than him. Normally, it's it's an older gentleman, an older gentleman who um, has people that does the dirty work for him, who kind of younger, strong people that that, that work for him and, and get told to beat up Roger Moore and, and things like that. But. Zorin isn't. Zorin's young. He's he's actually quite active, and he could. I'm am surprised he doesn't have a proper fight with More. That would have been that would have been quite a good uh, scene. I mean, there's, they do a bit of tussling at at, at at some points, but he's a KGB agent. He's um, a super KGB agent. He's he's meant to be genetically created to be like the best agent you've got. That's such a, he could have been a Red Grant character in that. Moore, I suppose Moore's too old to do it as well, but Moore um, more, um, and him having a few fight scenes would have been a fantastic concept. And he um, doesn't really do that. He's, he's more just kind of a, uh, an insane young man who hires Mayday to be his bodyguard. It's, um, but yeah, he's, I, I, think he's, I think he's a good character. He's just not... He's probably the best, one of the best things about the film. Uh, he's just not very well developed in it, and he 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 probably could have could have been a lot better. There was um, uh, obviously we're going to talk a lot about Zorin in a, in a in a well one of the last episodes that we do uh, if, or the last episode if we get to it <laughs> if we ever get to it. Um, he's he's an interesting choice. That obviously. David Bowie was uh, in the running to be to be to be Zorin, which would have been a very interesting person to pick. And you can kind of see with Bowie and Zorin what they were trying to do with this. I mean I'm assuming that that's part of the kind of eighties style they were going. A lot of um, villains in eighties films were quite similar in that kind of maniacal way, and they were kind of looking for that that person. Other people that were in the running as well were Lee Van Cleef. Who would have been amazing? Yeah, I don't know if you if you know Lee Van out well, but he he would have been an excellent choice. And Rudger Hauer, which um, I think would also have been would have been a pretty good option for, for that as well. He was also the only Bond actor to have won a Academy Award for The Deer Hunter until Rami Malek. Oh yes, until Rami Malek. Uh, and Christoph point, Waltz, Christoph Waltz
1: as well. Sorry, sorry to do,
0: yeah. I'm talking earlier ones here. He was the first. He was
1: the first. You're right. Sorry. He was the first. He was the first.
0: Yeah. And yeah, so he's he's done quite a lot of... Uh, he, interestingly, another thing about him as well was he... Wa- uh, walked and worked uh, on Heaven's Gate, which was a catastrophic failure, um, which almost left United Artists bankrupt. Yeah. And that was in 1980. But... Um, and that was the studio
1: they, they, making Bond, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they, they got him back for that, even, even, though, even though that didn't happen. Uh, so, I won't go too much depth with Zorin. He's, yeah, obviously he's he's an interesting character. I think he's quite a good character in it. But, yeah, as you say, wasn't really utilised to the best. That leads us on to Mayday. Very interesting character, um, which you probably couldn't have. I suppose that's another 80s kind of gamble that they took to try and move things around a bit, mix things up. It appeals it's a to good a younger
1: audience, of, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good example of. They were, they were. You can, you can see they're trying to mix things up and they're trying to try push some new boundaries, but it doesn't just. It doesn't seem enough. I don't think it seems like they're sticking to their guns, but slightly changing it a bit, and it, it doesn't quite pull, pull pull off in a lot of a lot of cases. Mayday was picked, or or Grace Jones was picked because Broccoli saw her in Conan the Destroyer and and wanted to speak to her, get her involved in the film. Obviously, even if you're not a Bond fan, you know that uh, more wasn't a fan in in many many interviews I think we've seen him speak at a, 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 an event and he mentions it there I think he mentions it in at least two of his books he's got that famous famous line where he says he's talking about Grace Jones and he says my mother once said if you have nothing good to say about someone then say nothing at all so he doesn't say anything <laughs> but interestingly uh, Grace Jones actually said she quite liked working with Roger and um, a lot of her kind of brash attitude towards him and kind of being a bit mean to him on set she said was because that's what her character was and she wanted to stick stick to the character i mean i don't know a lot about grace jones but from what i've seen i'm not not sure that's that was the case yeah so uh another little fact here but i won't go into too much depth with um with mayday but apparently barbara broccoli this is imdb trivia by the way so i don't know how accurate <laughs> it is but barbara broccoli, barbara broccoli had to collect grace jones every morning Um, Because Grace didn't like early morning starts, so she learned to be very diplomatic with her in the car ride to the studio every day. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Yeah, but she's um, she's an interesting character, and I she's like one of the not a lot lot of people don't like her, or a lot of people aren't that keen on the character. But she's one of the biggest characters to last the, the test of time. If you if if you talk to anybody about Bond and say give me some Bond villains, Mayday comes up there all the time and she's not even really a villain, she's a henchman, but people she has such a big impact on that film and she it, did I, so much in it.
1: I think if we're going to take positives away from this film, I think that I think Mayday
0: and Grace Jones
1: is one of the high points for me. I think she's fantastic in it. She's yeah. so unique, she's so interesting, she's so yeah. different and she just like you're right, right she rubs Bond up the wrong way and like, that's what you need. Yeah. That's really what you
0: need. And in that film, it's you definitely needed someone like that because Roger wasn't in a... He was quite old. Having somebody like that really mixed him up a bit and kind of just made it more interesting. The relationship that he had with her was far more interesting than he would have with a, a male henchman in, in, in that film. So it did make a bit more interesting in that film. Um, but also, she, she does get quite a lot... She gets some of the best like dialogue in the, the the film she gets some of the best scenes she's a, a fundamental character in the plot line the best um, stunt
1: off the Eiffel Tower
0: yeah yeah so she's really quite a like important person in that film and also I'd probably say that that gamble that they took or that idea that they, they, they did is probably fed quite nicely into later films with how they just just how they use women in various roles and stuff like that because it it, it was such a massive leap forward that it opened up all these doors and after, after that, you can start seeing them use women in certain roles more than you would have expected in the previous ones. So she's a very important character um, for the Bond legacy. And yeah, she's probably one of the best parts of that film. Agreed. Okay, let's move on to some of the other characters. So how about Tanya Roberts, Stacy Sutton? Stacey Sutton is a geologist who works for the San Francisco State Department. Probably not a very good choice for this film. She's, she's by far one of the least prominent people in it she just almost doesn't seem like she needs to be there when we were watching it the other day we kind of her, her value seemed to be in telling roger a very simple bit of information about a geological map which he just kind of said thank you but the, that was it and then and then he's just kind of carrying around all the time i i couldn't quite work out why why he was why she was so heavily involved in in the plot and he spends a lot of time in her house yeah that's weird. For no for no reason that that house it always it's like a scene that you don't need him running around with his salt gun <laughs> not realizing it's it's an actual um it's it's just got salt in it. Interesting fact he doesn't actually shoot a gun at all in that film uh, that, that contains bullets. He only shoots that one one gun with salt <laughs> powder in it. So uh, that's a good bow out for Roger there with his final film. Uh, so uh, Tanya Roberts, you probably don't know much about Tanya Roberts, really. She's not really been in been in much um, over the years. You might have seen her in the occasional series that, as a kind of guest actor, um, she was picked up. Broccoli saw her in The Beastmaster. You seen that? <laughs> yeah. So Beastmaster for her, and then
1: uh, Conan yeah. for, for Grace Jones. You can kind of see what see. broccoli films. Broccoli's <laughs> watching. Uh,
0: so he was. So she was in The Beastmaster. Not not particularly. It's kind of a cult film. It didn't do particularly well. Um, I think I've seen it maybe once. I don't, it's kind of that Willow ilk, but not even as good as Willow. Uh, so he picked her up and put her, gave her the role of Stacey Sutton. Uh, she also um, was in Charlie's Angels quite late on in the series. They brought her in to kind of revamp the, the Charlie's Angels series, but after a, a few episodes, I don't think she did very well, and the series didn't, do where it didn't um, improve after that. And... She was also nominated for a, a Worst Actress Rosie at the uh, Razzie Awards for that for *V 2 Kill*. Oh dear, so that's always a treat. <laughs> uh, so yeah, not not really a lot to say about Tanya Roberts. I just um, she's definitely not one of the main main Bond girls that you you put in a list. I, I think people who are very general Bond fans would struggle to remember her. She definitely. She, I mean, if you're a, if you're a Bond fan, you, you'd know her, but you probably wouldn't know a lot about her. But I think yeah, if you spoke to somebody who just liked a bit of Bond. They're probably not going to know much about um, Tanya Roberts. Okay, other people we've got. Ah, big one. Big favourite for me, Patrick McNee. Yes. Who plays Sir Godfrey Tibbet, which is a really interesting character, actually, for, for View to a Kill, because he's he, he's obviously the, he's the fourth Avengers actor to, to join the series. But interestingly, he didn't really... He wasn't a fan of bond he he was he, he was good friends with Roger Moore. he'd been in some films with him and he was also good friends with Ian Fleming so he had quite a big investment in in the kind of the, the bond history but he he's he said in various um interviews and things like that things that didn't really make bond he wasn't basically say he, he wasn't a big fan of bond didn't like the films anywhere near as much as the books and he he worked with uh, Roger before, so he, his main interest in, in joining the film was was just to work with Roger, basically because he, he liked him and he, he wanted the opportunity. And I think the part was and written
1: as a as a jockey at first, I think, and then they aged him up yeah, to be a horse yeah. trainer instead.
0: Yeah, he's uh, well. He's, interestingly, his father was a horse trainer of some sorts, so there was some link there with with. Um, Patrick Mcnee, but as a character he's very interesting he's um he's certainly an interesting interesting in the fact that in this film roger moore is obviously quite old so have it giving him somebody who's of similar age to him i think he's about five years older than roger in 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 the film it's an interesting dynamic between the two and it, it works quite well i'm not sure how that would have worked if it was he'd come in at that age with roger moore in live and let die or something like that it wouldn't quite have worked but they had a nice rapport where they were like mates in that whole 40 minutes of strange strange scenes uh, early on. Obviously, he dies at the end of the part of the film, which is the, the horse racing bit. He's a very prominent character in the horse racing bit, does quite a lot of stuff. There's a brilliant scene where Roger is basically telling him off because they're being listened to by a microphone in the room and uh, he has to pretend that that, that Tibbet is his uh, staff, so he keeps telling him to uh, stop messing about and clean things. That's a nice little bit of film. and Obviously, Tibbet's not very happy about that. So, yeah, big. Uh, he's... he's um, Big character for, for me. I think he's. I think he's a great character in it, and definitely an interesting one. I, I kind of wish he would have been in more Bond films, really, as a kind of U, uh, UK version of the the Felix Leiter character, which would have been quite nice. He also does a lot of voice work on some of the kind of Bond documentary stuff as well. So, good, good, good man, good lad. Other characters. I'll go. I won't get into too much depth with these. You've got David Jip, who plays Chuck Lee. Uh, you may remember him from uh, it was in San Francisco. He plays the kind of CIA operative that helps James Bond out who like, is liaison he takes the, he's he's in the film instead of Felix Leiter and they were originally going to have a Felix Leiter character in the film but they decided that because a lot of it was focused around Chinatown in San Francisco they wanted to have a, a, a Chinese character in that role which I don't really I don't think that's really that relevant I don't it's not, cr- do not a crucial the, part to the plot is that not, not really it does seem quite strange that they decided on the removal of a really fundamental character to, because of that so I don't know if there's some other factors involved but definitely um, I don't know why they went for that he uh, David Jip is uh, most famous for uh, his role in Temple of Doom where he played a gangster I think uh, Wu Han yeah uh, it's the in the opening the scene isn't it yeah um, so he's quite good in that interestingly he's actually um, I, don't, I, I didn't know a lot about uh, david Jit before i read this but he was in a 1981 bbc drama called the chinese detective yeah which um i've never heard of and then also he played michael Choi in brookside between 1989 and 1990 Yeah, great actor i think mm, yeah yeah so yeah i didn't like that about him let's move on to alison doody who plays jenny flex future james uh, another indiana jones link Another end, yeah. It's uh, yeah. She's another interesting one. There's actually a very good link as well, that which you probably don't know about. She was also in Taffin with Priz Brosnan. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So I didn't know that before. Her character is. She's not really. in uh, People talk about um, Jenny Flex quite a bit as a Bond girl and um, a main character in View to Kill. I don't think she's in View to Kill that much. She's she's she very rarely pops up. She's kind of in the horse scene at the start, wearing a tight jodhpurs, and then later on she kind of pops back. Um, in the I think not until like the mining sequence I certainly don't remember much else in in the film so um, but everyone seems to remember her and I don't know why because that name really isn't a very good Bond girl name <laughs> doesn't really mean anything um, she was 18 or uh, well, turned 18 when she was in that film so she was youngest uh, ever Bond girl at the time I don't know if there's one after it I've not I can't, certainly can't think of one after that but yeah she's um, yeah. A, 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 she was still right in it I can't think of any anything interesting she did in it. And then the only other character who's really a new entrance to the cast is uh, Scarpine, Patrick uh, Baukow. or I'm not sure how I pronounce his name. He plays the head of security for Max Zorin. Doesn't really do a lot. I seem, in my head, I can just remember him with a hard hat on in the mind 10 shoot uh, I think he shoots someone. But there is an interesting fact about him. He uh, was considered for the part of Jean Picard in Star Trek which um, certainly made me more, more interested in reading about him. Uh, he's done a few with the Columbo and Murder, She Wrote and those kind of standard tick tick box um, drama series, detective drama series. But, um, yeah, so that's that's the main cast, really, the, the new ones that have been added. Some interesting ones, a bit of a mixed bag, um, some strange decisions, but, uh, yeah, there's certainly some quite good ones in there which which probably get underused in this film.
1: And you've also got Fiona Fullerton as well, haven't you, as the... Uh Oh, the hot, the hot tub Bond girl.
0: Ah, um, so Fiona Filton is very interesting because again, F- Fiona Philton's role in in the film as Polar Ivanova seems almost kind of wedged in unnecessarily to the film. She doesn't get a lot. She's not got a very big part. Um, she's basically plays a, a Russian spy who who Roger has to get a what is it? She tries to get off of him. It's a tape, um, isn't it? Is it the? T- oh yes, the tape. So she, so she he's got a tape. She wants to get it off of him. They they sit in the jacuzzi. He does a funny joke about Tchaikovsky, and then ev- eventually switch the, switches the tapes. So she goes off with the wrong tape, and he gets it. Not really a big role, and it almost seems like the only reason she she's in it in that film is to get General Golgol in, because he seems to be in every single one of these films, regardless of Russia's influence or involvement in that film. <laughs> Obviously, here he's got the KGB, and so there's a little bit of a link in it. But it does see it does seem like he's in films when he doesn't need to be. But originally, uh, in the in the script. It was meant to be Major Anya Amasova, uh, Agent Triple X from Spy Love Me, which would have been a nice and interesting way to to actually do it. It would have made more sense
1: than the role that she has now because she comes in and leaves very Mm. quickly.
0: Yeah, with no setup, you don't really know who she is. It would have made more sense
1: as a cameo, I think.
0: Yeah. But if um if it had used Triple X, it would have been I don't know if they planned to add a bit more script in with Triple X. I mean it seemed a waste to get her Barbara Bach back in just to do that small scene. But definitely would have been a nice like end to the, the Roger Moore journey, um, having that callback if it was done well. But yeah, Fiona Fulton doesn't quite she's fine. Isn't it? She's, she's, is she's it not? it's a nice scene. It's one of the, it's probably one of my favourite scenes in the film. It's quite nicely done, Roger's good in it. But um it just seems strangely un- underused and quite short sorry there you go yes. yes no there we go yeah that's that's they're the new cast that we've got uh, that we've got in the film yes yeah,
1: so i guess i'm so talking of golgol we've got uh walter gotol is back as gogol for his fifth out of six james bond films he plays the, the 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 kgb guy yeah other returning cast members include desmond llewellyn obviously he's back as q it's his 12th james bond film amazingly hmm Robert, ba- Robert Brown is in uh, for his third Bond film. He is M. Um, so uh, it's the second film as M because obviously he first appeared as Hargreaves in A Spy Love Me. Then uh, you've got the big ones, right? So you've got uh, Roger is back um, for a, for a final time. And so his original deal was for three films. Um, and obviously that had a long, long pass. So like you say, everyone was waiting for him to everyone wanted to know when he was leaving everyone wanted to know who the next James Bond was was going to be so he drove quite a hard bargain to come back for Octopussy mm-hmm. and you know Eon did a lot of tests with a lot, lot of other actors including James Brolin um, so he'd really pushed them that hard pushed them hard that time but this time I think the decision from what I understand was quite quick he decided that he wanted to come back he didn't want to negotiate for for weeks and months with cubby so they agreed a price and they, they agreed a price on the condition that it would be his last film so i don't know who's uh, who it was more important for to be his last film whether it was further for, for for cubby because he didn't want to pay him more or whether it was just because yeah. roger just felt he was too getting too old for it but that was the, that was the decision it would be his last one and i think he was yeah. quite keen to come back to do one more after the whole octopussy versus never say never again it was like he'd you know, he conquered his Sean Connery demons, I think, and yeah. s- he felt ready to, you know, prove himself. He was Bond, right? So he wanted to one more crack at it. Yeah. At the time, he said, "He said, actually, I'm playing James Bond again because I feel sorry for Cubby. He'll have a terrible job finding anybody else who will work as cheap as I do." He's obviously joking. He says, "Actually, I enjoy the work,
0: and I'm just glad people are still misguided enough to employ me." So, um, I always think when I, when I see Roger talk about these things that. He's the only Bond actor that really wanted to stay all the time. <laughs> I, know, I know he negotiated over money, money a lot, but he, whenever we I, I read about him talking about Bond, he just he loved being Bond, didn't he? He he loved the character. He loved talking to the the fans. He just loved talking about Bond. Whereas the other ones, well, a lot of them are reluctant to do that. They don't like that side of it. They like the they like playing it. They don't want to be typecasters, is, is it? I think that's the issue. And I think Roger was yeah. sort
1: of very. Um, Rogers knew that he, he had his limits, right? He, like, he's obviously great at what he does and has, brings that humor to it, but he's not like, he's not a thespian, is he? He's, he's very much a, right. uh, a very old school sort of Hollywood leading man. And he knew that that w- that was his, that was his strong point. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then, then uh, the, the other remaining cast, uh, returning cast, Lois Maxwell, she, she's back as money penny and it's for the 14th and final time. And so, according to interviews with her cub cubby had spoken to her and sort of said you know they they were the only two of them that were still remaining on the series from dr no and so there was quite a big you know quite a big thing for her to leave the series at that point I guess now when they decided this would be her last film I'm not sure there's conflicting reports out there but I know that it must have happened. It must have happened either before this film or just after because there's a point in an interview with with Lois Maxwell. She says, Cubby phoned her and said, I'm sorry, Lois, we won't be using you in the next James Bond film. I wanted to tell you myself and I didn't want you to get a letter or hear about it in the press. And she just thought that was very kind of him, which suggests she found out after the film. But a lot of people say that she knew in this film, but who knows? But she really wanted to have a character killed off. But they just recast the role instead. So yeah, that's that's the returning cast. And so I guess before we dive into the production, I guess there's just one sort of little story to tell
0: about yeah about the making of the film before production started. The fire. The fire. Well, it's quite famous in um, in 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 film the film world. The old the, the whole the fire incident. As you as you all know, uh, the 007 stage was a film created. It was actually um, in 1976. By Ken Adams to house the set he designed for the interior of the, the super tanker in Spy Who Loved Me, which you'll remember was an enormous scene. It, they, they, it, they had to build this set to house what they wanted that scene to be. So, creating that set was quite a big thing, a big achievement really for the, the Bond franchise to do because they, they they just needed something of that scale. It's uh, that original set cost 1.8 million pounds to build. It's it was, it was christened on the 5th of December 1976. Uh, by uh, Prime Minister Harold... Uh, well, Harold Wilson was at the ceremony. And it measured 102 metres by 41 metres and was 12.5 metres high. So, a quite big set. And technically, because... Well, apparently, because it had no soundproofing, it was a silent stage, the largest ever built. However, uh, the stage was burnt to the ground on the 27th of June, 1984, which is obviously the st- when we were, they were making View to a Kill. Um, and it burned down at, towards the end of the filming, uh, Ridley Scott's Legend... So that took four months to rebuild. Um, we'll go into that in a, in a minute. But it reopened in January 1985.
1: Stage. And it basically just threw the whole production out because they were planning to shoot the, the mine scene there um, in the 007 yeah. stage. And so from what I understand, once the fire had happened, they had to rejig the entire shooting schedule, bring everything forward and just move that right to the very end of the shoot. And actually... yeah they only made it by the skin of its teeth really because they had to from what I understand the month the fire had been it would take a month to clear it what do you say three or four months to to rebuild it and they couldn't start it four shooting months to rebuild, yeah. they officially couldn't start building the set until the very last piece of the roof had gone on so it was very close to the, yeah. close to the wire well, I
0: think they actually started even though it took four months to rebuild the set I think they started doing stuff on it even before they'd finished doing it just because they were so desperate to um to, to to get back onto it but yeah as you say it's, it would have had a massive effect on on the filming and i imagine when you've got the second units working on their their projects in, you know on these big sets they probably do those quite early on because they're such a big thing to do so i mean that's probably we t- we talked about this as well the the kind of mind scene at the end of a view to a kill being somewhat lackluster in, in in how it is built especially when you compare it with some other ones and it must—it must have had a massive part into play in that this this whole fire that that affected how they could do stuff.
1: But yeah, there's the fire. Well, let's jump into production then.
2: So moving into production, I'm just going to cover the crew that worked on the film, and then we'll move into where it was shot. This was the third third Bond film directed by John Glenn. Uh, which were all in the 80s. This was the one that sat in the middle of the 80s. Um, so we will cover him in a future episode anyway. John Barry, he's back for his 11th Bond film, and but this is his 10th Bond score. And it's produced by Cubby Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson. Michael G. Wilson's also part of the screenplay team uh, with Richard Maybaum. And then you've got Peter Lamont. It's his third Bond as production designer. Mm-hmm. He had been working on the Bond film since Goldfinger though where he was a draftsman so he's very ingrained in the Bond uh, world as well so I'm sure we will cover him in greater detail it's the last film in the series for the long time stuntman Bob Simmons so he he worked on quite a few projects Uh, he sadly died in 1988 and then you've got Martin Grace who who had taken over as stunt coordinator Uh, and he needed a full time double for Roger Moore and he used Jason White to do some of the the harder things. In, in fact, there's quite a lot of stunts in it where you can you can see the stuntman doing it. Because of the, the I think it's something to do with the shots that they use, they're like long shots. So you get quite a while to see that it's not Roger Moore. So there'd be Jason White did a lot of the Golden Gate stuff where he's hanging on to the blimp via the rope. All stunts that were done for real, so he is really like swinging in the air and you've got remy julien who's got a team of who did all the driving stunts so there's a very iconic stunt which i think we'll cover as we get through to the stunt section but john glenn said remy's english wasn't very good and my french was even worse we managed to communicate through drawings so that makes it even more remarkable some of the driving stunts they get into this film that were obviously communicated through through a sketch essentially Including the uh, the car drum that goes from the ramp onto a moving bus. Amazing. So yeah, that's that's the crew, the majority, you know, the important people on the crew.
1: So I guess um, there's conflicting reports, but we we know that the first bit of shooting happened in in San Francisco with those uh, shots of the blimp. Uh, I I think that possibly principal photography began with the stuff at Ascot, but before before that they had some second unit stuff going on to shoot the pre-title. Um, credits uh, pre-credit sequence which is the snow scene Mm -hmm. and so that was filmed over two locations in iceland and in switzerland in iceland it's the it's sort of the 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 bits where you can see the glaciers and the uh, icebergs and they're shooting on there and then the stuff in switzerland is when they're doing the actual skiing so the stuff uh it's all set in siberia but shot shot in two different places they shot on this is my swedish pronunciation vatner Nyokul glacier on the south in southeast iceland and, and they shot this on a lake which is full of these icebergs and it was quite a dangerous place to shoot because the icebergs the, the, like the, where they were they can flip over at any time and that can sort of cause tidal waves knock people over and they cause them quite difficult um quite a difficult shoot for them there's a scene where there's a helicopter a model helicopter that they they have to crash and it took them three attempts. They had these like beautifully made like model helicopters. They just the first the first two just didn't work at all properly, and so they uh, yeah. But they got it on the third third attempt. And then obviously the famous part of that sequence um, is the um, the bit where Bond escapes in a submarine. And that looks like it looks great. Obviously the interior is built on a set in Pinewood, but the one he climbs into it's just a fiberglass model and they shot this really in iceland so they had a little stuntman inside this fiberglass model and it was apparently like freezing cold it, it was it was airtight so there was no real air in there it just sounds like it was horrific um horrific stunt for that guy to to to, to pull off in this yeah. freezing, freezing lake and obviously then on the flip side you've got the skiing sequence which shows you know Bond uh, using a snowboard. It's the first time snowboarding has been captured on on camera, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in another episode. But it was sort of masterminded by Willie Bogner Junior. Uh, he's this great stunt um, skiing cameraman. They did plan to shoot this in Scotland, but after five weeks of planning, the snow melted, and that forced them to change their plans. So then, yet yeah, from there, then they went on to Ascot, did their bit there, and
2: um, and then they moved on to France. Um- and the Eiffel Tower takes a, a, a big, a memorable part of this film, certainly. The, the dive from Mayday, the skydive, where she goes on a parachute at the end and then gets onto the boat. So that jump was something that had come about a few years prior from a lunch with Michael G. Wilson and a stuntman. And, a stuntman and um, they just said, oh, wouldn't it be great to jump off the Eiffel Tower? And that took four years from, from that idea to grow into actually getting to, to do it because it's obviously really difficult to get those permissions. As John Glenn said, the Eiffel Tower was tricky because there are very strict rules about stunts being performed. The problem with the Eiffel Tower as a jumping platform is the top is very thin, but the bottom is very wide. So it slope, slopes outwards very quickly. So this took a lot of preparation to, to work out and, and maths i guess like and work out how many seconds Mm. you've got how dangerous it is what you're going to need to do it so they're two stunt parachutists bj worth and don calvet and they got permission from paris to do two jumps from a a a platform that if you watch the footage in the final film you can see the platform so it was colored the same as the eiffel tower but you can you can see it worth was practicing the stunt um, by jumping from hot air balloons because obviously you can't practice from the actual tower. So the key to the success of that was the calculations and Michael G. Wilson worked it out and said you've got about three and a half seconds, then you've got to pull it. So it's quite precise as to whether this would be successful. Luckily they had a French production manager who was able to facilitate this, the the permission. So they got the permission, the ramp was built. And it really needs to be a calm day because any gust at all would have just sent him back into the tower and would have been disastrous. So on, on dawn one morning in August, he were dressed as Mayday and prepared to jump from, from the tower. So he said, I inhaled deeply and shouted, this one's for Cubby. <laughs> <laughs> I bolted down the plank and dove over the edge. Throw my chest to the horizon. Time almost stopped. Luckily, the jump went off without any problems at all. And then um, half a minute later, he lands safely on the, on the ground, uh, right next to his family. And then Cubby Broccoli, later that evening, sent a case of champagne to his hotel room for a job well done. So it's obviously chuffed. There's a, a um, the
1: behind the scenes video on the on the DVD is great. Those two parachutes yes. are really great, like interesting characters. And he said that yeah, the, his, he knows he knew it was three seconds by the whistling in his ear, like when it reached a certain pitch, then he yes, knew that was yeah. when he had to pull his his chute. It's amazing. Yeah,
2: that's great. The other parachutist, he was unhappy about not being able to actually perform the jump. So the next day, he went up to the tower really early in the morning. Without the authorization because they'd got what they needed, they got it all in one shot. But he went up anyway and he did the jump. Which resulted in as the team were there setting up for the next day of shooting <laughs> they caught wind of this and he was actually fired from the production. Well, apparently he shot um, past the, the the camera crew, didn't he, on the platform lower. He went flying past John yeah. Glenn and <laughs> John Glenn was there, yeah, exactly. So yeah, lost his lost his job on the on the production. And never came so, back for another Bond film? No. Never, that was it. Done. i oh, an idiot. So, hope it was worth it.
0: <laughs> nice, great scene that one. There's actually um, another air- airborne section of that. So, the obviously that when Mayday goes to the ground, that's when Roger Moore gets gets down to the bottom and he, he picks up his Renault taxi. Uh, and and it's it's I don't remember this chase scene very well. Even though we watched it recently, I don't think too much happens in this chasing. It's not really a chase, is it? He's chasing a parachute. So he's just driving around. There's not yeah. other cars involved. So he's going around smashing up Paris, costing loads of money to, to Paris. I think somebody worked out how much it actually cost and it was like hundreds of thousands of pounds. <laughs> but as, he, as he's going around, there's there's various things going on. The most important bit and the, the biggest stunt or thing that happens in that scene is the car splitting in two. Is that the one you're talking about, Brendan? Yeah, so the car splitting in two, like, if you watch it, it's quite a... You think, oh, it's just a car splitting in two, but if you actually think about it, that couldn't happen. It just like, the, the, <laughs> the the logic of that that working and setting that shot up <laughs> is just ridiculous. So what? How they actually did it was they had an electromagnet holding the two parts together. That was it was hold it was hold, holding the magnet so that they would just it would just hold the two bits in place, and then they just turn off the magnet, and then it just it just drops down. So it it works very. It's quite a clever clever idea to do it. I'm not sure how much that would have cost to do. It's, you just have to have a pretty powerful electromagnet in there to actually do that but yeah that's uh that's that's probably the 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 most interesting bit that happens in in that car chase there's also a bit where it's actually it's not really the car chase but the scene where mayday is landing on the boat at the end you know the the where where roger moore gets into the wedding and smashes up the um cake and all that stuff so that interestingly was filmed before the jump from from the eiffel tower uh, and it was B.J. Worth who, who who did the scene jumping from a helicopter, which was f- being flown by Mark Wolf, the the pilot. And Mark Wolf is a massive name in. He's basically just a pilot who flies people around who jump out in in films. And he's done stuff for loads like Star Wars Episode Seven, the edit of the Eagle film, Everest, where he's actually helicopter pilot in Nepal. Um, oh, the wow. Expendables series, and one for you, B.J. Um, Fast and the Furious Six. <laughs> yeah great so that was Thanks. yeah so um he jumped he jumped from the helicopter when, and when he was at 500 feet he said action over the radio in his hand and the boat parts underneath one bridge took off so he had to repeat the scene because the, vo- the boat disappeared while he was doing it so quite an interesting section of that it's a it's a nice it's quite a nice chase sequence it's quite different isn't it it's not just two cars chasing there's a lot going on it's it's quite a long extended sequence as well because you've got the eiffel tower the 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 car chase the whole weird boat thing with the wedding but yeah a lot of elements to it it must have been a really difficult one to set up and get all of the the, the various bits working together so it actually looks right because they're not filming all these in the, yeah. in the same in the, at the same time they're doing it all in different different sections so um so yeah
2: that's the uh the, the car chase the, well, the- prior to the uh to the car being smashed in half he um they they do a stunt where the the car, which was shot with like loads of cameras surrounding it, so they could get the right shot. But they they literally did do it as well. They slowed the bus down to such a pace where they could do that jump, and the car could go up and then land, and drive across the bus and then land back onto the onto the ground. Amazing. Um, I think if we're talking about was, like
1: positives from this film, like this this chase sequence is well executed. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very,
0: it's very good. Slick. Yeah, yeah, they re- they really went crazy with this whole sequence didn't they they could have done they could have just done mm. one bit of the sequence just just the the eiffel tower <laughs> parachute would have been fine just do that and yeah that's going to impress people but to add in all the different elements is quite a quite an impressive task
1: so should we go from a high point to a low point <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: let's head to chantilly okay. so this is the um this is the country house. Zorin's country house is uh, horse racing abode. And um, this, so while the second unit was shooting in in Paris, the main unit moved to Chantilly Estate. And the Chateau de Chantilly is obviously this really famous French cultural landmark. Apparently, the work of Henry de, de, de Orleans. Don't know who that was, but he was the son of the last King of France, Louis Philippe. And so the the chateau itself, it's sort of two parts. It's got the petit chateau. And then you've got the the, the grand chateau, which was dro- actually destroyed during the French Revolution, only rebuilt in the 1870s. So it's quite a famous place. Some some fun facts about it: Pink Floyd when the, uh, performed there in the 90s. Ronaldo, the footballer, married got married mm. there in 2005. And there is also a level, a uh, battlefield level, set at the chateau called Ballroom Blitz from the game Battlefield mm. One. So that's some fun facts for you. Mm. So in Chantilly this is where we get to see uh, Cubby Broccoli's own Silver Cloud Rolls Royce which is really interesting, it's obviously a Bond car, in a film where Bond doesn't really have a car this is one of the sort of uh, the the best cars to appear and it was Cubby's own car and so um, Patrick McNee does the driving there and he said it was obviously very difficult because the estate was built for horse carts and this car was massive and so he's very worried about scratching the car when he was driving it around there but um there's obviously that scene as well where he chucks a bu- bucket of dirty water over it, which I imagine was put in just for Cubby. So not much to say about this really. The, the, the cast obviously really enjoyed working there. Christopher Walken said it very it helped him very much feel in character. You know, uh, this sort of multi-billionaire playboy. He enjoyed it there. Tanya Roberts was very taken with the location as well. She said it, you know, it looked lovelier than most people's houses. And, and obviously then we've got the, the horse racing scene and you've got um, Zorin riding his horse, Inferno. But Christopher Walken said that um, he did none of the horse riding himself. He said, I'm not a horseman. I was born in New York. <laughs> so he, in those scenes, he's just riding on top of a fake horse on a, on a trolley. I'd love to see a um, photo of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that was that was Chantilly. I mean, it, it just plays such a big part in the film. It just really drags it down, I think, though. It's such a... It's such a it's, great location.
0: It's a nice. It is a nice location, but it's it's not a lo- It's not a very interesting location to spend a lot of time in. Like it, it'd be nice if Bond went to somewhere like that and did something, but that would that you don't need to do anymore. It's like Drax mansion, isn't it? Drax mansion. You go to not for very long, and it's quite an impressive mm. thing to see, and it's showing off Drax's wealth and his power. And that's the only reason it serves. That, that's the only purpose it serves, really. And the, the fact that he likes all these amazing, beautiful ornaments and stuff like that, which is probably kind of what they were doing with, with, with the Chantilly, but for far too long, to the point where you're going, well, what was the point in this originally? Why why are we here? I think the the reason they ended up there, because
1: I think they probably had decided on the Eiffel Tower stunt, and then because they decided on the horse theme, this is like the home of horse racing, yeah. I think, in, in France. The, the The chateau itself is very much a home for horses. Like yeah. Patrick says when you go into the building, it's just paintings of horses rather than people, mm-hmm. which so you can see it, but it's just, um, it's, it just is a terrible drag. Yeah. And, and yeah. so then the, the
2: crew then go on to Amberley chalk pits. <laughs> what can you tell us about that? Amberley chalk pits. Yes. So the interior of Mainstripe mine, which is the end set piece, the mine where, which is Zorin's plans to blow up the interiors at Pinewood, but the exterior is an Ambly chalk pit in West Sussex, mm. and it plays the part very well. It's it a looks... damn fine chalk pit, if you ask me. If, if you were looking for it, a chalk it pit, is.
0: I, I couldn't think of that one.
2: <laughs> I remember, it's got a double for you know, a, a mine in in America in yeah. you know, which it does, well. it, does, it, it does very well. It does it does very well. I think they looked out with the weather. It's now known as the Ambley Museum and Heritage Centre.
0: Are we going to take a trip there? Which you we are. We just yep. looking it up now. Well,
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I've looked. It, you can take visits there, and it still looks the same. And the good thing about Amberley is they're very passionate about keeping the link with James Bond, as you'd imagine, very much yes, alive. Yeah. yeah, so they'll do regular sort of Bond days there, and it, Ooh, it does look like a, really good. A, a good good place to to visit. Do, do they have a, a, uh, an old American fire truck there at the entrance? <laughs> <laughs> They've got all the um, all the Zorin carts. Oh, They're okay. still there.
0: Interesting.
2: I'm definitely going. So there. it's it's all there in in terms of telling you anything else about it. There's 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 not much really to tell apart from it's it's still there and you can still visit it and that's what they use. There is a for the um, exterior shots. there's a really good extra on the DVD
1: which is film 1985. Is is they do a special report from the set at, Am- at Amberley. That's the only other thing I can add and that's on the dvd, that's on the DVD yeah. yeah
0: it's it's not um yeah. it's not an exciting location is it as, as locations go but there's no, what what can you do with a plot that ends up in a mine but it's doubling for uh, san francisco
1: right it's doubling for california so i guess yeah. well, that's where we're, yes. that's where we're headed yeah. next isn't it which is where the shoot went next mm-hmm. yes
0: and so the city had to be insured for 100 million dollars to shoot there apparently yeah ooh yeah it's um well quite a lot happens in san francisco in this film it's um it's not so much a location as the heart of the film, really, in terms of the relationship they had with the San Francisco like, mayor's office and, and all this kind of stuff. And we'll, I'll go, go into that in a bit. But, yeah, in the, in the, the actual location for the fire truck scene, it before before Bond, was View to Kill, was being filmed in, in San Francisco, it it was on all the news and everything. People knew that it was coming. It wasn't like... You know, on a, a lot of Bond, Bond films, you probably, nobody probably knows that Bond's filming down the road. They just secretly go there and they do three or four days. This was like a big thing. It was on all of the news reports. The ta- the the city was going mad. They were really excited all the Bond fans with like uh, all over the place. So anytime they filmed anything, there would have been loads of people around. And it just looking at these actors and just just filming all this stuff. And as you probably see with the San Francisco chase sequence, which I'll talk about now, there's people everywhere. And I imagine that they're probably not all extras. They're just there's just so many people. Around there at that time, around the streets, that that it just seemed so busy. So yeah, it was a really big deal at the time, and a lot of stuff happened in in San Francisco. The uh, second unit filmed the chase scene um, at the intersection of Market and California, and that's the that's the sequence where Bond is driving the fire engine around, <laughs> escaping the the mayor's <laughs> building. Um, again, this is another. Keep trying to pull out the positive points of this, this film, but I think this section is a very strange section to, to have in. It's, it's almost, it's very well done, but not quite sure why he, it, it, a lot of the stuff he does in it is almost, you can't, can't work out logically why he's doing it. Why is he taking this fire truck and, and all these these things? So that sequence, it took quite a while to film, and there's various bits in it that are actually quite nicely done that, that you'll remember. One of them is the bit where the two police cars, vendors, uh, attached to each other so they're kind of driving two cars at the same time so the way they did that was they actually just got two cars and like connected them together with uh, with bars so that, that it could move together and they could actually talk to each other because the, the two drivers talk to each other when they're when they when they're going along uh, and that was rigged up to the back of a another van that was filming which was filming that as well so it must have looked ridiculous to anyone watching it quite an impressive spectacle to see on the streets the uh, remy julienne was in charge of the action um along with arthur worcester on that whole section and the stunt door for roger moore uh, was dick uh, zicker and tanya roberts had uh, a lady called karen price which was used for climbing down the ladder and when there was all the crowd underneath it so there's there's a lot of elements to this section probably one of the most interesting ones this is another imdb fact so i'm not sure how valid this is but um apparently the stunt driver he was meant to drive the, the the fire engine on on the on the day that they were doing the big stunt he he didn't turn up for some reason what does it say here um uh who he, no, he's too short to reach the pedals and properly operate the truck so uh, roger moore apparently took, took it took on himself and he drove the truck because he had driven lorries before his acting career so he actually drove that we, as we, we said when we watched this, we're not sure which bit he would have driven it in or how long he drove it for, but apparently he was actually driving that fire truck at, at some point. During that scene, Another uh, talking about the um, San Francisco crowds there all the time, they they set up the outdoor settings close to uh, the big market that they have in San Francisco, which can be viewed from all of the offices. It's like a big street market, and they kind of used that for the cast and crew. So everybody was just sat watching from all the buildings Roger Moore and all the cast just sat there having their lunch all the time on this shoot which was just meant to be phenomenal people just there taking pictures all the time and obviously Roger Moore was just just giving autographs constantly to everyone in San Francisco um, throughout the whole filming process so yeah pretty big scene lots of stuff that goes on in there not one of my favourite scenes as I said Um, I think the whole fire sequence where they're in the mayor's building seems very very strange it's not we talked about where He's carrying Tanya Roberts down some steps, and that scene lasts. He walks down all of the steps, and there's a lot of steps, very slowly. Just a man walking down some steps with somebody on his. It's it's not a bond scene with a crowd clapping. With a crowd clapping, like they're clapping. Just a normal fifty-six-year-old man who's escaping (laughs) a building slowly, Um, and then obviously he he jumps onto a, a massive fire truck to escape being chased by policemen, which again. It's a very similar theme to taking a blimp with your name on it to, as an escape vehicle. He, everyone could see him. He, I think he had the the actual alarm on, didn't he, when he was driving it? So yeah, they, he just kind of drives away with him, and, and then he does this strange thing where he gets on the back of the, the with the ladder that then swings out back and forth on the street, which. And, and I never knew why he got on the ladder in the first place. It seemed quite odd, and he's swinging over the fleece cars and everything. So it's a bit of a messy scene. It's, it's some nice stunt work in it, but again, it's um, it's it's not one of the better ones. They've got
1: the bit where they jump over the the, the suspension bridge. Not the suspension bridge. The um, the bridge that lifts up.
0: Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah. So it lifts up slightly, doesn't it? And he goes over it. So it's not like an amazing stunt that one. Um, Doesn't get much hang time, does it? No, it just goes... It's just a slight bit. It's not like he shoots... Hang time's right, isn't it? You've you've, you've hit it on the nail on the head there. Uh, (laughs) There's not a lot of hang time in that that scene. And then the policemen are in it far too long afterwards. (laughs) One of them drives up it and then gets trapped at the top and ends up falling down and the other police cars come to the bottom and the police car hits both of the bottom ones and knocks them out of the way. And then they start talking about it. I don't know why. But then eventually Roger carries on driving this fire engine out of san francisco all the way to silicon valley <laughs> and nobody bothers chasing him after that point i think hmm. they give up thinking they won't be able to find him when he when he gets out of san francisco <laughs> and nobody wants the fire truck back either um they so that's a, it
1: there is a great scene at city hall where they set city hall on fire and um that's all done with um uh, fire rigs on top of the building apparently yes. looks quite um, quite spectacular and real. And they that people actually thought it, it caught fire and, and burned down, yeah. Um, yes, but yeah, so I guess the next uh, thing that they do in San Francisco is the Golden Gate Bridge, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah, which is obviously the climatic scene of the film. As I said, that the first very first shots of the film were, were filmed there in '84, um, but then uh, they later returned. Um, and uh the ac- action sequence arranger martin grace su- supervised two uh, shots of two stuntmen fighting on the top so there are a couple of shots in the in the final scene which were filmed on the very top of the uh, golden gate bridge which is amazing really but actually that only accounts for about five percent of the the of the sequence according to um yeah according to the the, the dvd extras so um the rest yeah. of it was done. Uh, they did, while they were up there, they shot um, what they call vista vision plates. So they use these huge like, format cameras to shoot plates so that when the scenes where Roger Moore and Tanya Roberts and, and, and Christopher Walken are hanging off the bridge, they what they did then is they set up a rig so they projected the footage that they'd shot off the Golden Gate Bridge onto the floor of the studio so it looked like it was miles down but actually they're only about three foot off the, off the ground. So that's how that stuff was done. They had models. They had scale replicas. They also had a full scale section of, of the top of golden gate bridge built at Pinewood as well. Um, and that stuff is, is, is amazing. When you actually watch the sequence, it, you'd be very hard pressed to figure out where each bit was filmed. If you, unless you really (coughs) knew your stuff. Yeah. Um, the scenes where
0: you yeah it's definitely it's definitely as things go from that film that is the standout thing that you remember isn't it they use it on all of the advertising all of the dvd covers all that kind of stuff it is it is an impressive thing and it's 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 one of the it's a location that if they hadn't used it then they would use it at some point in the future because it's 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 such an important way to do it and they did it i think they did a good job with it i think they used it well
1: yeah it's iconic uh, so I mean I just want to credit Pete, the, the editor of the film Peter Davies who, who I think does a fantastic job with that John Glenn apparently uh, he's a great action director and, and is very he makes the very most out of everything he shoots apparently there's not many stuff, much stuff that he shoots that doesn't get used so uh, he obviously knows how to, to shoot this stuff and uh, yeah that's that so, so when basically when after that when Pinewood wasn't quite ready them to start shooting they took a christmas break and what interesting to learn that uh, apparently roger uh, invited christopher walken and his family to spend christmas with him in switzerland mm. so um yeah so christopher spent time time there yeah. just one one more thing before we leave san francisco um they also shot the um St- stacy sutton house scenes at a place in oakland mm. And that start, it's Dun Dun's Dunsmuir House at Peralta Oaks Court in Oakland. Again, it's an absolutely pointless location. Um, it just
0: seems like they're just... Maybe they spent so much with that chasey because at the start they just went, oh, can you just find a clo- house close by that yeah. we can use?
1: So, yeah, yeah, then then after the Christmas break they returned to Pinewood.
2: Back to Pinewood, back to the newly rebuilt uh, soundstage which had been renamed the Albert R. Broccoli 007 stage. And... The uh, production designer Peter Lamont had designed the interior of the mine, which was absolutely huge and was the largest stunt team ever assembled for this uh, for this set. So there was over a hundred stuntmen, all for these mm. uh, the, the multi-layered uh, mine that was that was built. So it was capable of housing all of those extras and also the water that was needed for. For the right at the end, where it's cascading through and it floods the mine, and and in that when they were actually shooting, so they're at the end where they're wading through all those the the flood all the water, the the wires are sparking around. Mayday screams, and she's reacting to the to the threat, but it wasn't acting because she'd not been told by the director or the production designer that it wasn't real live electricity, so she he got the best out of out mm. of Grace Jones he got the reaction he wanted from that fantastic set you, you can imagine that you know the set was so vast so impressive that grace jones was very much in that moment which uh, she she found out that john Glenn was also talking rubbish about the live electricity and she hit him in response to that so to be expected but yeah it's a very Im- impressive if not inspiring it's not not that it's not like a, it's not a Ken Adam, uh, in terms of its uh, in scale, it's huge, yeah. it's massive, it's layered, and it can hold all the water. There's
0: not much you can do um, with it. Like it's not a volcano, is it? It's just a mine. It's no, the- it's a mine. But yeah. The thing
1: is, is it, we talked about the context earlier, and this is a year after Temple of Doom, and obviously Temple of Doom has that iconic mine mm. sequence, right? And mm. just the comparison yeah. between the two, and you say you like, oh yeah, they used the the soundstage at Pinewood, but you know, they shot Temple of Doom at L Street. It's like... Yeah, it's yeah if not, you think about yeah. Temple
0: of Doom, that, that's a mind scene, but it's colourful and there's things happening and it just looks great. This is just a grey... It's very grey. All I can think about it in that last scene is just grey backgrounds and Mayday. To be fair, you wouldn't know it was shot on a soundstage, but that's about
1: the only yeah. positive you can say about that. It's Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and just touching on what you said before about the shooting of the Golden gate bridge scenes at pinewood 95 percent of that the final scene was actually pinewood footage yeah so it's even more remarkable like when you watch that and you can't find it you're like no this is all on the bridge yeah yeah it's
1: it's incredible so at pinewood they also did the fire scene and in the, in the town hall the interiors there and uh, uh, and and they, they they had the grand opening there didn't they at pinewood while the production was happening. And Roger dedicated it to Cubby to Broccoli. Well I guess that wraps up shooting.
0: Okay so. We'll move on to. The post production. Of View To a Kill. And the logical start of that. Would be the title sequences. So again the opening title sequence. This is another Morris Binder one. Towards the end of his tenure. But um, yeah it's a Morris Binder. It's obviously got A View to a Kill performed by Duran Duran and written by Duran Duran and John Barry. The sequences, I mean it's not it's not the most exciting of Bond sequences. It's it's quite standard fare in terms of what Morris Binder's done. It's and, and it's something we've seen in quite a lot of the Roger Moore ones. It's quite similar to Octopusy in, in many ways. Um it's 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 got a lot of women with hands in front of their faces with for the titles unzipping jackets there's a snow theme a snow and fire theme to it based on um the kind of opening sequence in the snow and and the fire of course at uh, san francisco it's also it's also you reuses some roger moore silhouettes from earlier films as well and it's of course the last time we ever see roger moore silhouettes ever in a title sequence so it's quite an interesting one from that perspective there Duran Duran got involved in it because the uh, bass guitarist john taylor encountered be Rockley at a party um, and asked him if he was going to get someone decent to sing a Bond theme um, and this apparently led to the band meeting up with John Barry um, who was able to, uh, to, to actually get them involved and um, they, they worked together on the, on, the, on, the, on the soundtrack it's got a quite different tone to earlier Bond films the, the previous four Bond film title sequence music was quite slow, all time high Moonraker, all those kind of ones. Very slow, melodic. This is very different. It's very action-packed, very punchy. It's what you probably expect from the 80s influence that was around at that time. And probably as far as they got in terms of moving closer towards what other um, films films are doing in terms of the music. I think that um, um,
1: yeah, Duran Duran were obviously massive at the time and it's another move yeah. by the producers to try and entice a, a younger yeah. audience in.
0: Yeah, and it works very well. And and, and when they're at the, um, the 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 premiere and and Duran Duran were there, they said that there were actually probably more Duran Duran fans there than there were Bond fans. Everyone was there to see Duran Duran, uh, which is it's. I think it's a great Bond song. It's a very different one, and it's definitely stood the, the test of time, hasn't it? As a quite an interesting one, a lot of people say that it's it's aged very well. It still sounds relatively interesting and modern, and it works very well for that film, except for the fact I think that that film really doesn't do it justice in terms of action and and kind of like pushing it forward. It, it, it probably needs a slow on that film because mm. it is a pretty slow film. You could have used it on something else. So it's a bit of a weird mix. And you can see that going into Living Daylights where you've got Aha! doing the the, the, the theme tune, which is very similar. And A lot of people get those two mixed up, don't they? Which one's this? Duran Duran or Aha! But you can see the theme they're going through with that, getting, going for more of the kind of 80s action action style. So yeah, it did very well, and the theme itself was everyone loved it. Uh, it was it was beating everything on the US charts to claim the number one spot, which is quite rare for a Bond song. Getting it, it was a number the, one.
1: it was the first Bond theme to get the number
0: one. And there you go. So it's yeah, it's yeah, it's in America. Right. They did, they, sorry, in America, in the US. Yeah, but a big um, a good choice from the producers in getting them involved. If if you were looking at purely having you know a great a great soundtrack, but as we said. Probably doesn't necessarily blend too well with the um, uh, the actual content of the film. So that's it, really. Not the most exciting title sequence. There's not really a lot that happens in it, and yeah, just does the job, really. I can tell you a few more things about the theme song if you like.
1: Go for it. So it was one of the last uh, songs that Duran Duran worked on as, a, as as their original lineup. They you were on the verge of splitting when they were working on that with uh, John Barry. And, uh, and apparently this frustrated john barry a little bit in the end and it was completed um across two countries uh in the end but like i said yeah it was the first bond theme to get a number one in the u.s got to number two in the uk charts the b-side is an extended instrumental mix called juran juran a view to a kill the fatal kiss mm. that fatal ki- ex- that fatal extended kiss did hmm. you manage to get hold of a listen to that because i couldn't find it no there was no 12 inch remix of the time because apparently they just ran out of time to do it but um there was a version that the bbc at radio 1 had which they played which had uh, a, a quote from goldfinger that plays over the part of it, i expect you to the i
0: expect you to die mm. They did say that, that it's uh, an interesting link that it's got the line in it dance into the fire and that's and there was the fire at the um 07 stage
1: yeah mm. um um, but Quite there pertinent. is there is a version. Um, there is a seven minute thirty seven seven and a half minute mix has been unearthed, and uh, that's that's been um, yeah. You can find that online. But yeah, it's kind of um, yeah. This the missing twelve inch mix is something a lot of people people talk about. It, they mm, were nominated yeah. for a Golden Globe for the song. It was the last. ...track recorded by the five-member lineup of Duran Duran... ...until their 2001 reunion... ...and they played it at Live Aid in Philadelphia. Really? Uh, was, there a, um, was there a view to a kill on Shaken and Stirred? Mm, I don't remember question. one. So, uh, after that. John Barry died... Uh, ...they dedicated the song to him... at ...when they played at Coachella in 2011. So uh, mm, Very mm. nice. So, posters, Brendan.
2: Yeah, so let's have a look at the posters the the main two I would say were created by Daniel Guzzi, who had previously done some Bond posters, uh, Moonraker, Octopussy. And the poster has got the quote: "Has James Bond finally met his match?" And what I thought was strange about this one is you've got Mayday and Bond back to back, and yes. Zorin isn't on it. The Oscar winner, there's a, there's, yeah. Yeah, so you, they've they've gone with you know Mayday who is the hench person of Zorin on that main poster. You've got another alternative one where where they're on um Bond's on top of the Golden Gate Bridge and Zorin's in the in the blimp. But they're they're the two main ones. They are quite iconic. They're some really good because the,
1: really good posters for this.
2: Yeah. And yeah, the the Golden Gate Bridge one's very striking because it, it uses basically one of the shots from the films, isn't it it's artistically created. While I was looking for more posters, i um I discovered that a lot of them that use the same poster all, all internationally, but they'll use different titles. So I thought I might just run a few alternative <laughs> oh, titles yes. past you they were internationally used. So Germany chose in the face of death. so th- there's some that there's some you think right, how that's gonna that's really misleading. I mean, to be fair, the English title is fairly misleading. You've got it's quite loose. Uh, Italy's got moving target. France went for dangerously yours. Spain, a panorama to kill. <laughs> the beautiful prey was used in Japan. Belgium, I thought was is the people who were getting sold short. Dangerous mission. <laughs> Large majority of it isn't that dangerous. <laughs> it's not very dangerous. Not a dangerous mission. Spy man, dangerous mission. <laughs> Easy mission um israel went for murder in the eyes which is quite a direct translation but just sort of twisted a little bit isn't it Mm. hmm view to murder in the eyes (laughs) Uh, and brazil and argentina went for 007 at the aim of the killers that's great that's all you need isn't it yeah covers everything so i thought that was quite nice because you can do different things with that title it's quite a strange title anyway isn't it to begin Mm. with so premiere did we have a premiere weekly we did have a premiere,
0: and it was a very interesting premiere from Bond perspective. If you, mm. if you, if you know anything about Bond, you know that um, premieres for Bond films normally always happen in London because obviously it's Bond, it's it's British, so they tend to happen at London Odeon o- Leicester Square, or they or they did. Uh, whereas the um, charity world premiere of this movie, held on May the twenty second, nineteen eighty five, was um, at San Francisco's Palace of Fine Arts. Now I mentioned earlier that the, the film had quite a big link with, with San Francisco. They, it was almost like San Francisco wanted, like they just wanted Bond to be involved and they, they kind of had gave so much help to the producers in, in, in doing that, in putting it all together. The Diane, Diane Feinstein Feinstein was the mayor of San Francisco at the time and she was a massive fan of Roger Moore and, and Bond in general. So she granted so many permits to the producers because of this love of Bond so so, that, so that's why so much happened there. And they did the premiere there to thank San Francisco because because they were so nice and they let them do all these massive scenes and um, didn't, didn't cause any problems. It was just it was just perfect for them. So they did it. It was uh, the Gala Charity Premier Benefit uh, held in aid of uh, Mayor's Youth Fund to benefit to benefit the Tenderloin Child Care Centre. And the and that was on the twenty second of May. So the actual UK premiere didn't take place until June the twelfth at London Odeon Leicester Square. So quite a gap from when it was in San Francisco. So everyone was there. You had uh, Christopher Walken, John Glenn, musicians, Joan Duran. They were walking down the red carpet. I mentioned earlier that John Duran had a lot of fans there, screaming fans for them. They were kind of like the big, the big ones there, and everyone was really excited to to see them. So that was quite a big big moment. The Roger Moore said, I suppose the greatest compliment that one can pay to another another town or city is to say that you treated me like I was at home. Well, you didn't. You're much nicer. <laughs> Classic Roger. Um, obviously a big, big fan of uh, that whole process. Uh, BJ Worth, the stuntman, made a leap from a helicopter touching down outside City Hall during the premiere. Quite a big deal. You might have seen that in... Um, I think there's some footage on the YouTube of that, which is quite good. The, the, that's the building scene, the opening of the the fire truck sequence. Uh, Roger Moore delivered a speech, thanking the city for the, the cooperation. Later on, the celebrities parted ways, and um, some of them attended Grace Jones's invite-only birthday party, while some of the others went to Hard Rock Cafe. I wonder what Roger did. <laughs> where, <laughs> where the production hosted its own affair. So, pretty big deal. Pretty, I imagine that would, would have been a phenomenal night out in San Francisco because mm. it was such a big, big thing. And then, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of films that do take place in San Francisco, but not. I don't think there's many of that scale where, where it's all about San Francisco and you've got... And, and at, at this point, this was a big, big time for Bond, wasn't it? This was... People knew it was the last Roger Moore one. People, it was coming... To, it was mid-80s. So it would have been a big deal. But the premiere certainly did sound to be um, quite an impressive affair.
1: Yeah, I guess with it being in America as well, it's kind of rare for them to be have that huge, the Bond films
0: there, isn't it? It's, it's interesting yeah. that they they launched it I there. I think it's funny that it was San Francisco because, I mean, you can see why they did it, and obviously they, they they just had so much like support in doing the film. But you'd expect it if it was anywhere. At some point, it would have been New York or somewhere, but it never happened. San Francisco. There you mm-hmm. go. Yeah. Go figure. So
1: we, the film is now out. I guess we should look at the response that it received at the time. Now uh, we've tried to look at the best, the positives from this film, but I've got to say I think this is a dreadful Bond film, <laughs> <laughs> and in fact it is the worst reviewed Bond film yet, only beaten uh, on Rotten Tomatoes by the nineteen sixty seven Casino Royale. So it's the lower. It's the mm. Bond film with the worst reviews. Um,
0: I did actually find that surprising until we watched it recently. I think it's one of those films where I probably watched it as a as a as a kid or a teenager, and you don't really you don't really know if it's a good Bond film, then do you? you, want, no. you oh, there's a good fight scene. There's a good chase sequence. And it has got uh, those iconic
1: and, moments, like I said. It,
0: yeah, and I think I, re- I remembered those iconic moments and thinking this is a good film. I really like the the bit on the Golden Gate Bridge and all that kind of stuff, but. Yeah, and it's been a long time since I've watched this. And watching it now, you kind of set it back and go, oh, actually...
2: It's you know, such a, a bond, drag, isn't it? Yeah. but There's so a th- reason you don't remember the filler. Yeah. Because it's not a good filler.
0: Yeah. Well, so, the filler disappears, doesn't it, over the years, and you only mm-hmm. remember the good bits.
1: So 38% it is rated on Rotten Tomatoes. And most of the reviews have it in for Roger. And I've got to say, I think, actually... Roger Moore I don't have an issue with him in this film I think he I think he does a good job he is clearly looking a bit too old for it uh, but that's yeah. not his fault he He definitely no. he's definitely game for it I think there's a lot more a lot bigger sins at play yeah but yeah just some of the things that they said at the time the Washington Post wrote Moore isn't just long in the tooth he's got tusks and what looks like an eye job has given him the pie-eyed blankness of a zombie poor Roger <laughs> Um, mm. Gene Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert fame said uh, the end titles of A View to a Kill carry the message James Bond will return but if Roger Moore is going to star in the next one and if his villain is going to be as lacklustre as in this picture let's hope that Double 007 decides to chuck his license to kill and take an early retirement Wow Time called it exhausted and exhausting Pauline Kale she's like the iconic film critic of The New Yorker um, she says, you go to a Bond picture expecting some style or at least some flash, some lift. You don't expect the dumb police car chases you get here, police car crashes you get here. You do see some ingenious daredevil feet, but they're crowded together. And the way they're set up, they don't give you the irresponsible giddy tingle you're hoping for. So she's saying all the stuff that we yeah, think. She's pretty really cheap, she isn't she? Yeah. Absolutely nails it, yeah. The movie follows the Bond formula, but except the gadgets are cut. Uh, are a cut-less ingenious. The women are notch below stunning. The puns and double entendres, something besides clever. There is some magnificent stunt work which only underscores how inadequate more has become. <laughs> and well, she, that was
0: unnecessary. Unfair,
1: wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And she really has it in for John Glenn. I think she just thinks he's a, he's just not the right man for, for making an exciting um, Bond film. But yeah, like you said, Tanya Roberts was nominated for a Golden Raspberry at uh, the worst actress uh, uh, worst actress for Golden Raspberry she actually didn't win it she she lost, oh, to Lin- oh, right. she lost to Linda Blair who was in a film called Night Patrol oh in fact she was in okay. three films that year Night Patrol Savage Island and Savage Streets. is that three films? I don't know look I'll have to fact check that one but um, <laughs> it got a kick in it got a kick in let's just put it that yeah. way well but, if yeah. there
0: was any doubt in anyone's minds before or during or after View to a Kill being Roger Moore's last film. It was certainly put to bed when the, the critics got a handle of it.
1: This was and the yeah. nail in the coffin, for
2: sure. But, like, it did okay at the box office. It but wasn't amazing, well, was, it?
0: was well, it? Didn't
2: Brendan. Yeah, well, it got 152.4 uh, $152 million worldwide dollars, uh, that is. 50 million of that was in the US alone, and 10 million in its opening weekend in the US. That puts it 17th in the list of Bond's and, but but it was the fifth highest grossing of 1985 mm. which really? It, there were some big films in
0: 1985 yeah
2: so it's still it's still done well but then with inflation it's 23rd in the list of bonds
0: mm-hmm.
2: right On, only yeah, only license to kill is below it so f- something clearly didn't didn't work I mean it's surprising mm. to, to see that it was the fifth gross fifth highest grossing of 1985 but mm. yeah it's the second lowest bond.
1: It must have been yeah. a bad year at the box office in general, I guess.
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much all there is to say about that. Really, it's, it's, um,
0: it's funny, isn't it? Because you, it happens with all the, the the Bond actors, and you you want the last one to be a lovely bowing out and mm. great a great final, a, a Swan final song, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it never is because it's no. there's a reason why they're going. Like yeah. look at Diamonds Are Forever. It's not. It's by no means. One yep. of the best Sean Sean films, which right. makes me
2: worry about uh, no, no time, time to, die, to die. If that's if that's yeah. going to be a similar, case, well, you've got but... to die another day as well. So I mean, it's it's there's definitely yeah. a pattern there. Yeah, there's a pattern, isn't there? And
0: yeah, uh, well, well, we'll see if uh... License
1: to Kill. I don't think you can compare because obviously I don't think they expected
0: that to be his last one. But um... no, no, okay. no, no, don't don't we we'll leave Dalton alone? He didn't get a he didn't get a proper chance, did he? But um, yeah, it's it's certainly a, a theme, but it's logical, isn't it? The last yeah. film is not going to be the best one because they'll do another one if it's no. if it's the best one.
2: It's almost a time it, time to re to put it to bed, isn't it? Yeah. It was first broadcast on British TV on the thirty first of January nineteen ninety. Can you imagine waiting five years to watch that on TV <laughs> and then finally watching it on Christmas Day? <laughs> oh.
0: What's why are there so many horses, though? <laughs> is it still on?
1: <laughs> it's so, Boxing Day. There's two video games for this. Um, for this uh for this film the first um first we said the first bond film to get a video game so yeah the first view to a kill was published it was available on the zx spectrum and strad cpc commodore 64 and a bunch of other systems I've never heard of. And then there was another one, which was a text adventure that was built for DOS and Apple II computers. Oh, a text
2: adventure of a view to a kill. Can you imagine? Yeah, that was, hold
1: of that. that was developed by Angelsoft. But uh, yeah, definitely one want to want to look out for. So that, uh, yeah. that- which horse do you want to ride? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess um, I've just, just a few quotes from Roger here. Obviously, it was his final film. Um, and, you know, he was asked... Uh, at the time you know what what traits should his successor have and uh, they talked about Piers Brosnan being his successor and he said you know he would do a great job but he said you have the on the traits that someone has to have he said "You, you have to be prepared to get up early say your lines and not trip over the furniture and you have to be prepared to answer the questions with a smile on your face when you're asked how your bond compares to Roger Moore's but um, that was that was not long after that was while he was making the film or or, or at least not long after it, much later on in December yeah. 2007. He said <laughs> a classic Roger Moore. Wit, I was only about 400 years too old for the part when he made him to a kill. And he says it's his worst <laughs> Bond film. Yeah. And it, he also yeah. wasn't very happy with the violence in the film. He said there's a scene particularly. He said there's this whole slews of sequences where Christopher Walken was machine gunning hundreds of people. And and he said that wasn't Bond. They weren't Bond films. And he just said he stopped being what they were all about. He says that you just shouldn't dwell on the bloods and the brains spewing all over the place. And I guess that's sort of a hint at what's to come with the Timothy Dalton era, doesn't it?
0: Well, I I think that this, this probably happens with all of the, the Bond actors because... They they have to change the the films have to change otherwise they they'll fail mm. and if the actors start saying this, uh, they're, they're not Bond films anymore what they're really saying is they're not my Bond films anymore and they're not they can't see that they're not happy with the change I think Roger Moore actually came around didn't he because he loved Daniel Craig as well yeah so and Daniel Craig does have a lot of violence in it and it is there's a lot it's not like a Roger Moore film but he came around to it by that point obviously because he's so far removed from 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 the character by then but. It's certainly certainly an element if it were if you're a Bond actor you don't you can't see that that story changing because you're thinking this is it's not a Bond film anymore,
2: like I know it. But that's yeah. the nature of Bond, isn't it? I think in his defence on on this particular at the end of this film it is mindless just machine gunning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true.
0: That's true. I mean if, if it was if he was mowing down hundreds of people but done well you might have, uh, you might have <laughs> in, in an interesting setting. You might have gone, "Oh, it's very good, actually." That but, um,
1: there's no, there's no tension, there's no stakes to it. It's just no. not right. It's just mindless. You don't feel, feel, feel it other than like you know yeah. the spectacle on screen. It's um, mm.
0: yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's actually no real menace to Zorin all the way through, is there? Really, it's not like an no. overarching. It's not like a Goldfinger who's who's got his control of block Bond and you, you don't know what he's going to do there's no real fear, he's just constantly just driving around places isn't he Zorin's <laughs> not really doing anything yeah. to him uh,
1: he does have some great moments though I think Zorin, I think uh, in terms of high points, I like, I like Christopher Walken I think he's great, I think Mayday is, is great as well, he's got some really nicely staged scenes but the rest of it is just a trudge isn't it, it's yeah, yeah. It's, apart from Tippett oh sorry yeah Patrick McNee obviously <laughs> I guess that's uh, where we should wrap up our our View to a Kill special. Well, does that go in the vault? (laughs) No, (laughs) definitely, definitely does not go in the vault, in the the Bond vault. Um, But thank you for listening to this episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. If you have anything you want to
0: write to us about View to a Kill, where can they get us weekly? Bond A to Z podcast at gmail.com or bondatos to make it slightly easier for, for you to remember. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks for, for listening. Um, make
1: sure you like and subscribe wherever you listen to this uh, podcast and, and leave us a nice review. Thanks for listening. We will be back next time where we will be embarking on the letter B. So something new to talk about next week. Looking forward to
0: it. Thank you. Thanks for thanks listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Catch you later. Bye. james bond a to z podcast features tom butler brendan duffy and tom wheatley podcast was produced by tom wheatley with music by tom inglemels and artwork supplied by helen dolly